Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome one and all, weebs and casuals alike, we are Baka and Company, and we're here to provide you with a deep dive into all your favorite anime shows and movies. We'll talk about both new and old anime, and everything in between. If you have suggestions, please send them our way on Twitter, at Podcast, or sending us an email through BakakoPodcast at gmail.com. We also want to reach out and thank Akano from SoundCloud for our intro. On this episode, we have myself... Drutendo64, Element, and Magically Average. Uh, as well, we will be reviewing the hit 1988 cyberpunk-infused action anime film, Akira. I don't know what that means for the rest of you all, but I believe this was like my second or third big anime film that I watched. And it, it's what, after, like, I got into Evangelion and stuff, like, what kind of just put me on a road to, like, really high expectations. And it really sucked me in. That's yeah. funny. I'm glad we watched this again, <clears throat> because the first time I watched this, I was, like, I want to say, like, 13 or 14 or something. Um, I had just started watching, uh, it's like, Studio Ghibli movies. Um, so that was, like, my touchstone for what, anime was outside of like Pokemon Dragon Ball Z and then my auntie who sort of like some anime stuff said oh you should check out Akira because it's like you know it's a classic Japanese movie that everyone knows and I watched it back then and I had no idea what was going on and I thought it was like real fucking weird and then it was over and I did not understand what happened at all <laughs> yeah um probably so I'm really yeah I'm really glad we got to watch it again because now I actually understood what was going on and had an appreciation for like Exactly what made this movie so special, especially oh. from 1988. Dude, I just rewatched it as well, and I still don't know what's going on. 
Like, and <laughs> yeah, it, I was they, gonna say yeah. that's quite the departure from Studio Ghibli movies. Uh, it must have been a real shock when you were like, "Oh, blood!" Mm. Yeah, <laughs> you don't see it, that in Howl's Moving Castle a lot. Tonally, it was insane uh, a jump because I'd been watching like obviously you know like I said Pokemon Dragon Ball Z and then like, the last Airbender and then uh, Studio Ghibli. It's all like pretty happy go lucky, um, pretty uh, child focused, I guess. Uh, and then to watch this was. Yeah, definitely uh, crazy. So, yeah, I, I remember watching the first time and I'm like, how do people think this is like a great movie? I don't understand. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, now now, now I can see it for sure, even though, um, like you said, the the plot definitely, uh, it there's a lot of uh, fill in the gap in the plot, I think. Um, but I think they give you enough information to make a coherent story out of it. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that watching it again it made me realize that the focus isn't really on the story itself. It's, it's like mm-hmm. almost like everything else going on in the background. That's more important. So mm-hmm. that's why like, I, I tried to follow the story originally. And then when I rewatched it, I was trying to just spot everything else that I didn't focus on before and found myself enjoying it more, I guess I'd say, because I wasn't trying to solve each piece of the puzzle as they showed up throughout the movie. Cause it's, it's a two hour movie. So that's long. Mm-hmm. I mean, like for 19, what is it, 1988, right? Yep. Like that's a long movie for back then, uh, especially, you know, a Japanese film. So if you're trying to like, when you watch it, if you're trying to like slowly piece things together as the movie goes along, you just, you totally get lost and you just get inside your head. And then you're like halfway through, you're like, I have fucking no clue what's happening. <laughs> I am lost. I might as well start over. <laughs> I think one of the the biggest things for me was a very similar like mindset for that is the first time I watched it, it was in college and I had people like just ranting and raving about the animation, the story, the the subplots, and I kind of just blurred through it and I didn't really get hooked until like the midpoint where stuff starts going wrong and, and whatnot, but I... I think one of the biggest things that drew me to it was obviously the visual style and the the classic like bike drift and the lights being like a blurred kind of streak. But that music, like it is at points like very energizing, very epic. And then at other points, it's like super creepy. And I want to give a shout out to the, like the, the sound team for that because very rarely do you have like a, a one, two, three punch in an anime where everything just lines up so perfectly. And at the end of it, you're, you're amazed. Uh, I, after I watched the movie, I like went to um, Wikipedia and looked up some of the facts, uh, two interesting things. One to um, magically averages point was uh, this was the most expensive anime movie ever made when it was released. I think it had a budget of 55 uh, billion yen or something like that, which is I think a million US. I can't remember. It's, it's something like I, that. I think it's fifty. I think it was fifty-five million US, if I my math's correct. Something insane, yeah. yeah. Um, it was the most expensive since the last Studio Ghibli movie. I think Howl's was the most expensive before this. Um, so that explains, you know, the insane runtime and the insane quality of animation. Um, in fact, this uh. This movie was, you know, had with with anime. There's like sort of a committee of groups that sort of assign 
anime to different studios um, to manage production. Um, and an entire committee was formed just to make this movie out of multiple different studios. And they all worked together to to make this anime over the course of, I think, two years or something like that. Wow. Um, wow. And to Drew's point about the score, uh, the entire movie was scored before any of it was made. Uh, which what? is another uh, very unusual thing. Um, I can't remember if it said this was the first, but it's definitely extremely unusual. Uh, yeah, the entire score was written before the movie was made. Uh, voice actors and stuff had animatics to go against when they recorded their lines, but yeah, it's insane to me that the score was made before the movie. Um, that's like a crazy fact. You can almost tell that, though, too, because to to your point, Drew, the, the sound, like the, the music itself, is so dynamic throughout the whole film. But what caught my attention even more was the scenes where there was like, there was no sound. It, like there was, you just saw movement, things were happening. There was still dialogue, but there was no sound. And that was almost like more unsettling in the sense that like, you really didn't know what the like temperature of the room was. You couldn't tell if it was like really tense or calm because you, as a viewer, you rely heavily on music to sort of give you cues as to what's going to happen next and, like, what you should be feeling. But it, throughout the movie, there were so many scenes where, like, you'd have two characters talking, you have a group of people conversing with each other, and there was just no sound other than their dialogue. It was really, really weird. And it was it, not something that you experience often, but as you said, um, Element, that it kind of makes sense that the movie was scored after the, like way beforehand, right? Like mm-hmm. they just kind of like placed it in the parts of the movie that made sense. And so you had those gaps of like no audio and it, but it fit yeah. perfectly. It was really, really weird. That was something that's quite unusual and uh, pretty interesting to see was those scenes where there was literally no audio. Like, I think when the the solar array comes down at one point. Um, oh yeah, when, yeah, yeah. When uh, Canada is in the um, the singularity, there's like moments of just like complete silence, like no no vocal, no audio, anything like that. And I thought that was like super impactful um, and really interesting choice. And also to the music, I think one it speaks to like sort of a vision, right? To be able to compose a score for a movie before it exists uh, speaks to like, there is an obvious clear vision about what this movie is going to be. And I know that, um, and I know what it's going to be in my mind. So I'm going to write the music for it before it even exists. That's crazy. Um, but also I felt that while watching the movie, I felt that often it fit because of the nature of the movie. Like it's very, um, like you said, dynamic, very energetic, um, very unusual. Um, but also typically when you're, especially movies from that period of time when they're scored, the score goes along with the movie. So like in moments where some, the scene like rises in tension, the music will rise with it sort of thing. Um, in this one, I definitely felt like the music was there and it sort of emphasized what was happening, but it didn't quite match the pacing of the scene or something like that. And then sometimes it would abruptly cut off. I still think it worked um, just because of the nature of the music, but it's just interesting to see that difference between traditional scoring and this technique that they did. Yeah, and just to kind of quickly sum up a point to to that end, it's it was interesting from the sense that if you're the composer who's getting the information about the movie, it's like okay, it's we are moved to, what thirty one years into the future from where we're at. It's Neo Tokyo. Think very like futuristic cyber. Think bikes. Think army. 
think telekinesis mm-hmm. and then they're like wait hang on what was the last one they're like just sh- 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 stop <laughs> hang on i'm not done yet think biker <laughs> gangs think laser beams from space and they're like oh wait can we go back to the telekinesis though like there were so many different scenes in the movie to where the music made it more impactful but understanding now that it was created beforehand is shocking because like there were scenes where you were in a high speed chase with the bike gang. It's, you know, Canada's bike gang versus the clown bike gang. Like there was that intense scene. There's the scenes where they're inside like the research facility with the other telekinetic kids. Like that's super intense and it's still a battle scene. It's energetic, but it was a totally different sound and feel like it's, it's shocking. Like it's really surprising that it worked out the way it did. And I'm like big, huge round of applause to the the whole sound team for for being able to compose that well and one of the things that i noticed on a on a rewatch like before this one was the opening song is about those heavy heavy drums and it's building up to something something words are hard um and you can faintly hear one of (laughs) one of the singers go tetsuo and then you hear like later on yeah and it's building up and you're like what are they even talking about? And then you, as you get introduced to the cast and, and whatever, and you're like, that's, that's a very unique way to do it, but I, I enjoy it. I'm here for it. And wow. like I you're saying, I didn't even catch that. Yeah. It's yes, like, I thought I heard it's that like too. a throat singing and they go, Tetsuo. and then the other one's a little higher and it's like, Ganeda. and you're just, yeah, what? Huh. But it's again like uh, I wanted to talk about the source material for a moment because here it is based off a of manga, and the way so I I was very much in the same kind of boat as Element, and the first time I watched it was just as a young teen threw it on, it was on, absorbed it, carried on with my day. But then in college, when I like really fully is what I meant earlier, watched it and and understood what it was about. Um, when my friends turned around after it was done, he's like, well, if you want to read the manga, I have like the, the collected volumes. I'm like, okay. And at that point I was like, oh yeah, like 12 volumes. That's not bad. And he like slapped down like these condensed, like, yeah, it's like 2000 pages, right? Oh yeah. Like, and he had like, insane. he had the, the big, like Tankabon, 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 Tankabon. And they are like yep. dictionary yeah. thick. Yeah, I heard it was like a two uh, from the the wiki. It said I think it was like two thousand pages the whole manga, and it wasn't even finished by the time they released the movie. Like he still had to finish the, the actual manga. Um, uh, yeah, <laughs> after and the movie came out. One of the other things I wanted to touch on as well is because um, Akira is such a humongous phenomenon, and I I recommend it to everyone who enjoys anime. Uh, but Tokyo hosted the Olympics, as we know, and pre uh, COVID they were, it was announced for 2020. And in the film Akira, they reference uh, Olympics there as well. And say 147 days before the event of the Olympics in the film, they need to cancel it in the real world. As coronavirus expanded, they canceled the Olympics 147 days before it happened. (laughs) And I thought that was really weird. And there was a whole bunch of like marketing stuff, like leading up to the Olympics originally, that referenced Akira or showed um, like the cyclists that were set to represent mm. Tokyo or Japan 
and they were doing the slides or they were doing like the cool over the shoulder looks and like Japan got really heavily into like, you know what, this this film already made the the connection, like let's lean into it hard. And I thought as like a couple of years ago watching that, I was like, all right, I'm excited for the Olympics. I just hope uh you know kids become psychic and, and destroy everything. <laughs> just but, just shows that we're all in a simulation. Everything's been mm-hmm. planned out from the start. We don't have choices. They also said um World War Three happened in twenty nineteen, right? Yeah. Uh, no, uh, and, yeah. Isn't no, it was no, like in the nineties or something. Yeah. In the nineties. Because the, the movie started with it, I'm assuming around it was, the release date, right? It was nineteen eighty eight when the movie started. And then the No, I think Oh wait, you mean with the bomb going off? Yeah, yeah, with the bomb going off. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, no, you're right, you're right. So thirty one oh, years after that was twenty nineteen AD. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Because okay, it said the bomb went off and then it said like World War Three or something. Yeah, it goes boom, yeah, I think, boom, and, boom. Yeah, and right, I wanted to. Yeah, I, I wanted to talk about that a little bit because watching it now, I mean, action aside, cinematics aside, there's a lot of underlying like messages. I feel like they're trying to get out. Granted, I have not read the manga. I have not researched the sort of ref, like sources or like the inspiration behind the uh, Akira. But as the viewer of the movie and someone who's enjoyed it um time and time again it seems to me that it's really a message of taking a horrible horrible awful terrible situation and just basically saying all right we're starting over like we're starting anew because you think back to world war ii with the bombing of hiroshima and just the devastation it caused but how quickly they japan was able to bounce back as a country it kind of showed the same thing here right like yeah terrible explosion happened it's world war three that was a little bit less like you know like conspicuous in the sense that like you could kind of tell what they were getting at but with the ending too just sort of jump way ahead in the movie or way yeah way ahead in the movie like this whole idea that whatever happened this this explosion this singularity that was caused it created like a whole new universe it's the big bang it's it's starting from scratch Mm -hmm. it's like a you know it's like basically just erasing the board and saying okay we're starting from point a again and i think it sort of speaks to what japan as a country went through during the war and then up until that point in in time because you got to think the bombs were dropped in 1944 or 45 i think and this movie came out roughly 43 44 years later Mm -hmm. that's about the same ish timeline as the movie with the explosion happening in 88 Mm. and then jumping forward to 2019 so you can appreciate that aspect of it too that there was there was a lot of underlying messages and undertones in the movie that you could kind of pick up on now when you're older, you're not watching it as a teenager and you're just like, yeah. oh, it's just sweet bikers and guns. <laughs> you can kind of yeah. get a sense for it now and appreciate it. Something that really stood out to me was the, like the common themes of the Godzilla, like how those, those the, the Japanese movies are very much about like bureaucracy and government and failure to like, you know, act on anything, having 10 meetings before you, have a, a put together a committee to make a decision sort of thing. Um, and I, I definitely saw that in that scene where the council members are all arguing about uh, what to do. Um, I think they, I can't remember what they were arguing about something about, I think they knew about Tetsuo at that point. Um, and 
you know, the general's there in the meeting, or the colonel, sorry, and you can see, like, one of the council members sleeping, and, like, they're all just arguing about money and stuff like that, um, and he just loses it and leaves. Um, that, that one very felt very uh, Godzilla to me, like, that, that same, you know, the corrupt politicians and capitalism and all that sort of stuff, and, and you know, seeing the city, like, tearing itself apart and mm-hmm. all that sort of thing. Well, you notice, like, after Akira, like, um, just scrolling through the wiki here, it shows, like, musical people who are inspired by it film uh like cartoons now like teenage mutant ninja turtles does a bit where raf like skids his motorbike like they do but to the to the corrupt government thing it's it's a huge point that they do in a lot of animes like almost every mecha anime evangelion um any like coming of age like uh, a teenager's thrown into finding out what his parents actually do for work like eureka seven um seeing that government that's like okay we do have this super weapon that we can use how do we use it how many people is it going to kill what part of the city do we use it on where do we like and it's all this planning and it it seems to be at this point like a, a very established trope but seeing like Akira and having like those full conversations and hearing all that and and again the general the colonel like walking out it's it's to me like the beginnings like Akira did so much with such like I know we talk about how long it is two hours but with those two hours what it accomplishes in that timeline you get defined characters you get a defined story you get a defined resolution and in other movies that try to get on that level, you're, I, I find a lot of them miss one of those items. Like we can say, we can pick it apart and say there's plot holes here and there, but overall I found like rewatching Akira like was a complete film. Yeah. Sorry. Well, and I think to your point, Drew, too, that, where Akira succeeds is honestly in those holes, like leaving those gaps open for interpretation interpretation because a lot of movies you find that, you know, are two hours and you feel like, you know, you can get a lot in in two hours, obviously where they don't seem to be able to wrap it up or they, they seem to leave a lot of huge pieces just missing or not touched upon when the movie ends. It's because they focus so much on the story and making sure the viewer like, really understands it really gets what the conclusion is and is able to summarize it in its entirety whereas akira is complete opposite in that regard because they're more focused on giving you a full total complete just movie sure there are plenty of areas where you'd like to probably know more information would i have liked to have known what what the original explosion was in 1988 yeah, probably. Would you like to actually know more about Akira's like existence and creation and what happened with the Doctor too in that whole debacle? Yeah, that'd be nice. Does it matter? Not really. You can kind of theorize and summarize, you know, to what ends those might have played and in, in, in impacted the story, but you really just appreciate the fact that they got it all in in two hours and they created a sound movie from start to finish. Yeah, I found um, towards the end when uh, Tetsuo was going on his rampage through the city, heading towards the Olympic Stadium, I was just thinking about how much ground we'd covered and what exactly the movie sort of focused on as its plot. And I think it 
made a really clever decision to f- the, like the through line for the movie is Canada and Tetsuo and their relationship, you know, as the, you know, the brothers in the, I mean, not actual brothers, but like, they're like being lifelong best friends, uh, you know, in the gang and that, that sort of relationship really driving, uh, both of them to, to move the plot forward in different ways. And, you know, we touch on all these different aspects going on in the city, like, you know, the, the people who are like the anti-government terrorists and the people protesting in the streets, the religious fanatics calling for the return of Lord Akira, uh, you know, obviously the Colonel storyline with the doctor and Tetsuo's experimentation, all that stuff is like around the core relationship of Canada and Tetsuo. And that's what, you know, actually like Canada is constantly chasing after Tetsuo to try and rescue him. And Tetsuo is having all these things done to him, but his, uh, like emotional motivator, I guess, is that he hates being rescued by Canada. And then that sort of comes into play right at the end. And that's sort of a thing they introduce early on. Um, so I thought it was really, you know, clever. Like you said, there's, there's lots of areas where like, yeah, it would be cool to know more about like what, what exactly is, what exactly is Akira? And they do explain it, but like, I was definitely thinking earlier in the movie, like, man, I really don't know like any information about what Akira is or like who he is and like what, where this all began, like who made Akira, what did he just appear? All that sort of stuff. Um, and they do end up touching on it, but, um, I think the way they structured it was really, really clever. I think, um, yeah. So I found it's, it's sometimes it's easy to, um, to try and pick apart plot holes in a movie or something like that. And I find you tend to do that when you're not engaged in the plot. But if a movie is like sufficiently engaging, you just sort of let it go to the side and just enjoy the ride for what it is. And that is exactly how I felt watching um, Akira. Yeah. I wanted to point out uh, with the, like finding out who Akira was or is, or uh, that they did a good job giving you just a bit like enough of those breadcrumbs and a little bit of that mystery to get you to build your own theory on it. Okay. Maybe he was the first psychic. Maybe he was the next evolution in human. Maybe he was created. And then when we do find like Tatsuo going bananas about it, like digging it up and bringing this whole monstrosity to life, it's, it's like okay, that's that's different than where I was going, but I'm still here for it because now you're now you're engaged, now you're getting more uh, of the story to put together, and I really enjoy films that kind of show you where it's going instead of lead you where it's going. And to to what Magic was saying with the how the story was done, it's more of a of a complete film that gives us the chance to, to fill in those blanks. And because I find that more engaging, like sure, sure. I'll watch a film that is like, all right, student a like student B here's their romance and here's weird magic and stuff. But having those little gaps for me to fill in and for me to theorize, it's just more engaging. That's what I was trying to put down. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, so to kind of pose a question too to you guys, like when have you ever been watching like an anime, either like a film or a show where you have all these theories leading, like that you've formulated about some sort of situation or some plot line, and then an episode comes around and the character's like, this is the reason why this is. And you're like, that had, but but that wasn't even close to my theory. How'd that happen? Attack on Titan. Yeah. there you go. 
It's a prime example. <laughs> There's been numerous times where I've watched shows and I've just been like, why did they do it this way? It would have been so much better if they did it this way. Or how did they come up with this backstory? Like, why did that have any impact? And why are they the person they are today? Like, you remove, by removing those situations, you're allowing the viewer to, like you said, element to not just, I think, actually, I'm sorry, it was you, Drew. Like, you're not, like, pushing them along. You're sort of saying, hey, follow me, viewer. Like, we're going to go on this journey together. I'm not going to show you the way, really. You're going to have to kind of find it. You're on your own. But that's a good thing. Like, I'm not going to get in your way either. I'm not going to force you to go down these paths where I'm shoving down this plot line or, or, or point that really doesn't make any sense. But for, you know, completion, it does for, our, you know, for the pur- purpose of the story. I think Akira does a great job by removing that. Like it, it just it gives you full sort of freedom to come up with all these different explanations for why things are, because in the end of the day, it doesn't make a lot of difference when the movie wraps up, right? That's just an added benefit, added bonus to to the viewership of being able to go. Why well, think Akira was made for this? You know, the development of Akira was made for this reason, or here's the reason why the Doctor and the Colonel were working together to begin with. You can come up with all those things, but it doesn't change anything about the ending, and that's the beauty of the movie. Like you can totally remove. You can come up with no explanations. You can come up with thousands. It won't ever change the ending, and it's perfect. So I wanted to also talk about just the art style as a whole. And how, number one, the city obviously looks lived in. You have, like, very clean scenes of, like, the corporate hierarchy and all that stuff. But when you were down in the gutters with Tetsuo and the gang, and they're doing their stuff at the bar, or they're getting beat up in the streets, or in the situation where they all get pulled in for questioning, like, I've never had a a more intense sense of a city being real in a film like because it it was designed to be that grungy it was designed to be used and uh one of the things that stood out for me the most uh obviously was the bikes like because you have bikes that like kane does bike perfect it's the best bike in the world his buddies are using jalopies that are like built from three parts and then you got tetsuo who's like like driving a scooter and again, having having more lived-in content made it feel like a, a, a real thing. Whereas if you watch a lot of stuff now, it's all black and white. Everything's brand new. You watch the Transformers movie. Every car looks like it's just off the lot. And it takes sometimes, like, I watch things too hard is what I'll say. And you get take, the suspension of disbelief gets removed. And you're like, oh, okay, that's fine. But I, I also wanted to touch on... Uh, the Colonel in this movie, uh, when we were watching Paprika a few months back, and the detective in that one, they look a little similar, Like, and, and I think the voice is the same voice, so when I started seeing those kind of characters appear, you always have like the straight man, who's like either military, a police, or like a private investigator, and they always have like that same short mustache, they have the very like, I'm gonna get to the bottom of this squint. And they're always on a mission. I always love those characters because that's kind of you. You're you're trying to figure stuff out with them. And as they're getting the pieces, you're like, oh, I never noticed. 
oh, that's how it is, is it, Doctor? And and in, they just they're kind of more of a like an avatar for the for the viewer to to follow along with. Where if it was just a pure story about Kaneda and Tetsuo and and their thing, you'd be like, okay, I'm along for this ride. And I found like even the secondary tertiary characters you do start to get to know them a little more. And although the story is Tetsuo and Kaneda's, everyone has a very good bit in it. Everyone has a role to play and it doesn't feel like anyone was wedged in there. This is, again, this was made in 88. So like fan service was a thing, but we, we don't really get any of it like spoon fed to us. There's nothing, there's no pop culture references. There's no, like brands that were being like thrown at like there's no coca-cola signs everywhere there's not even the wick donald's or whatever the isekai <laughs> anime is calling mcdonald's in their world and again back to my point of a lived-in world it felt so well done that what is this my fifth or sixth time watching it that that i can sit there and still watch it and still have these emotions whereas if i was to to rewatch maybe like the first Naruto movie, it's like, okay, yeah, this happens. Okay. Yeah, um, I think one one cool bit of uh I guess world building or storytelling is uh that 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 building they get brought to when they're getting interrogated after they get arrested. It's like a repurposed gym or something like that. And you can see they're just people they're bringing people in by the bus load and just like looking at their faces to see if they're anti government terrorists. Like it's clear that they're just arresting anyone and everyone and just bringing them in by the busload to like interrogate them in this giant like repurposed gym um you know so you can sort of tell how the the, the government and the police force are operating in that city which um there was a cool little bit of storytelling and they didn't ever explain it to you but they just show it you know in the background of all these scenes um and then stuff like after they get out of the building and they're in the the parking lot then the explosion goes off and the movie doesn't it's like literally in the background of the frame and they just like look at it briefly and then continue on with what they were doing. Like, it's so like clear that like, yeah, this is like the city that they live in and this is completely normal. And, you know, this whole separate story with the terrorists and the anti-government stuff is going on in the background of this movie and it's not something to do with us at all, really. So we're just not going to bother spending any time <laughs> on explaining it at all. Um, yeah, I thought stuff like that's very cool. Um, and yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I I also found it really interesting that I came into it thinking, you know, you come into it thinking the first time with the movie's title and, you know, the characters, you're like, oh, this is going to be mostly about Canada. Like, that's, I would argue that the story is probably more focused around the colonel than anyone else. Oh. Well, because if you, like... It's such a diver- like it's such a distraction, really. Like Canada and his involvement with the the anti government group that are trying to like find one of the uh, mm. s- the subjects, right? The original, like, because there's that one random scene kind of early on where there was just this dude running with this kid, and you don't really know what's happening, and then you know this kid disappears, and you're like, that's kind of weird, but okay, <laughs> and then you sort of piece it together, you're like, oh, it was one of the you know the subjects that they were doing mm-hmm. tests on. He was a part of that group with Ryu and Kai to go and basically abduct him and, I guess, question. They don't really get into that either as to why they're doing it. But it's interesting because, like, 
you see all these different things and then they keep kind of snapping back to Canada and he's like, you know, goofing off or riding his bike or yelling at someone, you know, in school getting beat up by his, I assume, gym teacher as the principal reprimands him. And then it kind of snaps over to another, you know, storyline if it's, you know, if it's going to be the colonel or the doctor or whomever. But for some reason, no matter what happens, Canada's always sort of keeps pushing back to the colonel. He like, he gets involved with the anti-government group. He gets seen by the colonel. He gets in that original chase at the beginning of the movie where he finds Tetsudo and the kid on the highway and the, and the army comes down. He sees the colonel. He obviously gets in the fight at the end with Tetsudo. There's the colonel. Like, it always kind of comes back to the colonel and the colonel seems to be sort of like this, the anchor almost to everything that's happening because it really is not about Canada or any or anyone in the bike gang outside of Tetsudo, I guess. It's really about the colonel and what's going on with these telekinetic specimens that they've been creating over time and the purpose behind it, too. And then obviously, like you said earlier, too, Element, like the big, the, the scene that stood out really to me in terms of like the dynamic and like the interactions between the, between the different factions of the movie was the scene with the council where they're all yelling at each other and they're arguing about like, money and the uh, people are mad about the tax reforms but we still need money and we should give it to the welfare and the colonel's just like i need money for government stuff and they all basically turn on him and we're like fuck you what are you talking about stop trying to make a war he's like you don't get it do you and then he leaves and then you're like what in how did that wrap up so neatly and then come to find out oh they're basically all in cahoots and they're self-serving themselves and you find out that even the one of the politicians who led the anti-government group with Kai and Ryu was basically using them for their own, like, to get, like, higher up in the council and to get people out from their seats. So it always kind of came back to the colonel. And it, I find that to be very interesting from the perspective of, like, thinking it's going to be all about this one person. And it's really, really not. Yeah, I think... I sort of agree with what you're saying. I think there's two main story story uh, threads. There's Kanada and Tetsuo and their relationship, and I think that drives the emotional core of the movie, and mm-hmm. that gives Tetsuo his motivations to become the the monster, I guess, um, and you know go on his rampage because he's sort of one. He's he's gone mad with power because he's used to having no power in his life and constantly having to be rescued and stuff, and that's like a common thing they keep bringing up. Um, and Canada keeps serving to like reinforce that he's like always going to be the lesser of the two. So when he finally gets that bit of power that like tries him, you know, to do all these horrible things. And that's like sort of the emotional core of the movie. And that sort of, that sort of brings them to their final confrontation. It's like very emotionally charged and they're yelling at each other sort of thing. Um, and then the other plot is the Colonel's plot. And he's actually the one that's driving the plot of the movie. Like the actual events that happen in the movie all happen because the colonel takes Tetsuo and lets the doctor experiment on him and is also harboring all these other Esper kids and he's running the whole project around this, the like Akira research and stuff and letting the professor do it or whatever he wants. And um, then he, you know, is uh, frustrated with the council. So he takes things into his own hand and like essentially stages a military coup and arrests all the council and like gives himself absolute power and uses all these weapons of mass destruction, you know, on the city with people around and stuff and running tanks to the street. So um, I think it was clever doing two different story threads, one to drive the the actual in 
in world story forward and then one to give us like an emotional um because there's not going to be an emotional connection between tetsuo and the general or the colonel i keep saying general well, um, or canada i mean yeah he does he does keep showing up you know with like I, I i was thinking maybe there'd be some sort of um payoff with canada constantly seeing the colonel you know every time something goes wrong he keeps seeing him um so i thought maybe there's going to be some sort of payoff there but and it, he ends up just getting wiped out by the the whole everything sort of happens to him towards the end and he just gets teleported out by uh, kyoko um but yeah i thought that was that was a cool story structure i think so we've talked a lot about the story and sound i want to get into putting my phone on silent and also the like the art, the artistic scene. So whether it be an action scene, a dramatic scene, um, we'll start with magic. What was the the scene that kind of you, when people say Akira, you immediately think of? Oh gosh, that's so hard. Because like a lot of people like the movie for different reasons, right? Like some people like it for the action bike, cyberpunky nature of it. Some people like it mm. for that, you know, government versus the people scenes so like they might like it for the scene where the anti-government people blow up part of the casino and army just starts shooting randomly i think for me it's gonna be so lame though but like for me it's the honestly like the probably the beginning scene where they're in that bar like i like that i like that random dude kind of walking down like you can tell something shady is happening. The bartender goes over. There's all the different characters in the background. Like there's the couple that's like making out. There's the other dude that's trying to get with a woman, and she's like gross. There's just dudes drinking at the bar, and then there's kind of down the back picking out music, and it's just there's a lot happening, and that's what you think of when you think of like like futuristic cyberpunk, but still like gritty. There's always got to be a bar involved. I think that first scene just sort of like really snaps into it and really makes it very clear. Like this is going to be the sort of feel and vibe of the movie. You know, it's, it's, it's futuristic. Like it's all brand new. It's what they want you to think, but it's really gritty, dirty down to earth. That's what you're going to get into. So don't get your hopes up. (laughs) What about you there element? Uh, two things. I mean, in terms of, uh, I guess, art directional world building, um, that, that first sort of fly through of the city, um, where they're showing you all the city lights basically. And there's those holographic ads, you know, huge Blade Runner vibes, um, which I loved, um, definitely reminded me of 2049, especially, um, like I was quite impressed by the fidelity of those, those effects, um, for 1988. That's really crazy. Um, and then in terms of like just pure animation prowess like two things i think of um i mean i guess the baby scene at the end is very gross and very impressive animation wise like just the sheer amount of cells that went into this movie must have been you know unfathomable um but when tetsu is first unlocking his power and he's going through the ho- the hallway at the hospital um every time he does one of his like attacks where he like carves out domes in the sides of the walls that's just like a super dope effect i love that um, and then towards the end when he's sort of attacking the, the Olympic stadium, I think there's like just some crazy cells of animation with the explosions and the buildings falling apart and stuff that was just like mesmerizing to watch. I was just so impressed by just the quality and amount of animation that went into this movie. Um, and the fact that, you know, there's literally no way you can say that it doesn't, it doesn't hold up. It's better than most shows you'll watch today. Oh um, yeah. Mm-hmm. For sure. So 
and I don't think anything will come close um, outside of very few exceptions because just just the nature of how this movie was made and the you know the amount of resources and vision that went into it um, yeah it's it's sort of a one of a kind thing so yeah that definitely stuck out to me. <laughs> I think for myself, um, like I have a, a point at the beginning and a point at the end that really struck me just for, like you said, the animation that went into it. So we get that first scene where you have that that fancy restaurant and the riots are starting and the the one biker like flies through the the window, hits the table and you can actually see the table snap as he rolls off and just the the quality and time and effort put into that to show like gravity and force and like end results of, of how physics work. I just thought that was amazing. And just seeing like people who are just trying to have a normal life in this city, just get, have it ruined. And like, yes, this city is not like the pinnacle of human society. It's, it's a little rough. And then um, the one scene I always think of is the, the fight scene where, um, Kanada figures out he's got to be the one to stop Tetsuo and they're fighting in the stadium and the part of the stadium breaks, but he's on the bike and goes like mm. uphill and slows down at just the right time to shoot him. Like again, physics and force and all that stuff. It was just super cool. And then when he tries to fire at him again earlier on and the, the laser just like kind of like pinpricks him. He's like, wait, what? Mm. I thought that was also really cool. Like, Immediately throwing in lasers into any sci-fi thing is super cool, but making these <laughs> making these lasers, these handheld lasers that the the people are using, like have resources and have charges and ammunition. Like, I don't know how many movies I've seen where it's just like shoot everything all the time, and like with the with John Wick now, like John Wick's a prime example of like they made it their duty in that movie to count bullets, so. Keanu Reeves did weapon training. The stunt masters did their training so that if you are carrying a nine millimeter gun that only carries 12 shots, you have to reload it on screen. It has to be something that's done. And going back to where I'm going with this on Akira, like him firing like a laser that doesn't work eventually. He's like, okay, well I got to figure, I got to fix this problem. And then when he does the cool bike stunt and he's got like extra battery packs attached to him, I was like, kids thinking like this this the again they've they've put thought and care into this film you can see it pay off like frame after frame after frame and and it's just like it's a, a pinnacle of animation it's in like it's in top 50s it's in top 10s it's in top 100s like siskel and ebert picked it as a video pick in 1992 like these are hollywood reviewers that are watching anything and everything and for them to give a thumbs up to akira of all things is is like just a another trophy for them to put on their wall like i don't i don't think there's ever been a time where i've watched akira and been bored and again that's with all my rewatches like we we like we've been saying there's so much more to this film than what we're seeing that subplot of the terrorists where again we're not involved but you're like is this going to connect at some point? And, and again, we're talking about engagement. We're talking about how we get a very basic plot line at the beginning that just extrapolates into so many paths. And 
I I want to echo Element's comment. Like, I don't think there's going to be anything that surpasses it on a level of quality, polish, or condensed story. Like, I, I've enjoyed anything and everything Ghibli's put out. I've enjoyed pretty much the entire Marvel Universe. But I don't run around screaming to people like, you know, you have to watch Thor Dark World. Whereas if someone like my wife has an anime club at her school and she usually asks me like, is this appropriate for grade eight? Is this appropriate for grade eight? And we've had to like kind of move stuff around to say yes or no. But I think if, if these students have like, they've watched demon slayer or they've watched attack on Titan, like I could safely say, you know what? Ask your parents, and if they say it's okay, like Akira is where you need to start expanding your your horizons. Because, it in my mind, like this is where it started. Like we had, if we look into the '90s and you look into the early 2000s animation and how people started figuring out, it's not just about story, and it's just not about girls. It's it's about like putting together a complete product you have like the eighth ms team from gundam you have the early like uh starts with a g but guyver but you have a lot of these early early shows that went gritty went cyber and did robots pat labor is another another series that i remember watching because i saw akira and one of the channels here late at night did anime movies all the time. And there was another one about uh, like these guys privately funding a rocket. Anyways, off base. There was a span of time where everyone saw what Akira did. And I find like, even you can even see it in Cowboy Bebop, like the, the quality just suddenly skyrocketed in everything. We had a huge influx in great stories, great animations, great product. And then digital animation came along and everyone was like, screw it. We can make it faster. And I find we still do have a lot of good traditional and digital stuff coming out now. But my original point is I haven't found anything that hit me as hard as Akira did. Yeah, I I would add to it, too, that it you can appreciate it no matter what, like, at what point in your life you've watched it, too. You know, it came out in 1988. Everything that you've said, Drew an element you know u2 element it, like it just speaks to the fact that it is timeless and people still draw from it for inspiration and in what they want to do with their animation how they want to storytell but i also will sort of play devil's advocate and say that i think they the team the whole development for akira sort of profited off the fact that in the late 80s, and I would even argue up until maybe the late 90s, like, anime and manga weren't big in the U.S. Like, that, those weren't really, like, the top-hitting things in youth or young adults. And so they were really drawing mostly from fans within Japan and then surrounding countries, too, surrounding Asian countries as well. Nowadays, because of the popularity of anime and how it's just exploded, I would say over the last five years, but being a, a fan ever since I was like five or six, you know, I've seen it just grow exponentially since then. You get 
the sense that yeah like the the whole idea is to just churn out more and more and more so you know animation might not be as sparkly or crazy or experimental as it was before but it's partly due to the fact that there's more demand for it now so you don't see those amazing projects like akira anymore and it's a shame on the one hand but on the other side you know we still get just inundated now with as much anime and as much as you can watch and as much manga as you can read so it's sort of like a trade-off right because we probably won't see anything like akira again but on the flip side you're getting all these new shows new movies that might draw from it might use elements from it and really showcase you know here's what we can do nowadays too think about it 1988 the limitations then but how spectacular it was here's what we can do in 2021 and forward and what technology we have accessible to us just how much better projects we can create i just but i i do feel like we're just never going to get that same like holy shit this is insane like we won't probably ever get that again like we did with akira so i want to i guess maybe wrap this up in a nice little bow firstly <laughs> you know what we're talking about with the the sheer quality of this movie um i think one thing we didn't mention was that it was directed by the mangaka which is something that never happens when this was being pitched to him as a project that they wanted to make because this manga was like the the akira manga was huge in Japan, I think um, it was like an epic story that they really wanted to bring to animation. He said, absolutely not, unless I retain full creative control. And they said, well, shit, all right. And they put together that huge, massive committee, gave him millions of yen to bring his vision to life. And he directed the movie, um, which is pretty unheard of, I think. Like, it's very unusual, especially nowadays, to have the person who wrote the manga also direct the show. Usually they have a studio takeover and adapt the manga for them. And while the, the original author and stuff often has like some creative input or will consult in the production of the show, it's not up to them to direct, you know, individual episodes or direct the movie. Um, only like, you know, Studio Ghibli and stuff, they do anime original stuff. Like they write their stories and, you know, direct their movies, but that's, that's, that's very different. So I think this was like a special case where he actually got to bring his written creation to the uh, big screen and, anim and have it animated um, under his guidance. Um, and to your point about like, you know, this sort of situation not happening nowadays, just due to the nature of the anime industry and how it all runs. I think there is one glaring exception, which I learned about and watched uh, in the last year, which is Mushoku Tensei, um, Jobless Reincarnation. Um, so that's, that that uh that light novel um is like the granddaddy of all isekai like uh the authors of re-zero and all those sort of like isekai that you know like uh, sort out and lionels and stuff they point to this this uh light novel as the one that inspired them to write their their um stories and that sort of spawned that genre of isekai but mushoku tensei is like the you know the the great grandfather of these sort of stories and everyone points to it as being the case and it's never been adapted to anime because the author has said i don't want it to be like just sort of haphazardly done and like just handed off to some studio to do you know as like a seasonal anime and then it'll never be heard from again and so he's rejected every offer to have his his series adapted um, up until very recently where they said okay fine we will put together a studio filled with you know, in industry legends and excellent professionals, and it will just be dedicated to adapting your story to an animated series. And that's exactly what they did. They built an entire studio 
of people who are just going to adapt this series, this story, and that's all they're going to do. They're not being they're not being forced to pump out series after series and change directors and all that sort of stuff. It's just dedicated to this one story. Um, they released uh, part one of season one, I think, or just season one. I don't know. If that's I think it's part one of season one. And having watched it, it is incredible. Um, animation wise, you know, the quality that you very rarely see, like just the sheer quality and frames and stuff, but also like the care and storytelling and characters. And it's very clear that this is the vision that the author had, um, from the start. So I think, yes, absolutely. It's like a, a one in a hundred sort of thing, but it's very inspiring that this sort of thing can still happen in this day and age, I think. And, you know, I think there's a whole discussion we can have about that show. I'd love to talk about it sometime. <laughs> Let's um, do it. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, I love it, isekais. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, so I'd, I'd love to talk about that sometime because it definitely warrants some extra discussion. Um, but I, I do also agree with the fact that it's very, very rare that we get something of Akira's quality and like, yeah, I, don't, I wouldn't expect it to happen again. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I, that's such a pessimistic view from my standpoint, like uh, from what I said, uh, reflecting back on it just now, but like, I, I think you can definitely pull shows, you know, each and every year. I mean, we have so many fantastic studios now that are producing very high quality anime year after year season, you know, different season after season. And it's just, I, I think you don't get the explosive ones like Akira, I think just the ones that stand out amongst the rest are very rare. Now I can be biased and say for me, like that would be Cowboy Bebop. It'd be fully Cooley, you know, th ones that just really are intriguing top to bottom from the, the standpoint of animation, storytelling, things like that. But I think in today's day and age, that might be a good thing. You know, it's, you don't get the sense that they're trying to battle to be like the next Akira. Because then you're just going to get product after product that's going to be hundreds of millions of dollars that's going to take years and years to build out. And, you know, you're going to start to really, you know, miss out on what they could have been doing if they didn't dedicate, you know, hours and hours of time to trying to beat a legend. You know, I'd rather have multiple shows just pull from and be inspired by Akira and just do to the best of their ability that they can, while also not sacrificing, you know, their own image the last thing you want to do is just have sort of copycats down the road so i think i i can appreciate obviously what akira has done i don't think anything's ever gonna top it from a cinematic standpoint in 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 anime um but you can definitely appreciate what it's done to the entire industry from 1988 until present i mean you can still see elements of it today so it's uh definitely a classic so final thoughts, like I definitely love and cherish this this movie and I will always recommend it. I don't think, as we usually say, it's something I would immediately do, but I think in this case, it's one of the, the few films I immediately throw out. Like, here's the th three things you need to watch. Here is one of them. It gets you on a good, it gets you on a good path. Agree. Yeah, I agree. I I think this is an easy recommend. Um, I think it sort of has that cultural baggage that people sort of might vaguely know what it is anyway. So there's an expectation that there's a certain level of quality it's going to hit. So I think it's easier to recommend to people in that regard. Um, but also it's not like, I don't think it's overly anime in any particular sense. It's just like a beautifully animated movie. Um, there's an interesting story. It's a bit wild, but it's not anything. I don't think out of left field that you couldn't see in some other movie, I guess, just maybe done 
less well. <laughs> um, yeah, but I, I think this is obviously an easy recommend. It's a legendary movie. This and Fully Cooley, in my opinion. <laughs> I love Fully Cooley. <laughs> it's honestly, it was another thing that re-energized, like in college, my my anime addiction is the word we'll use. Uh, but I want to thank everyone for joining us today. We appreciate all the feedback you've been sending us. Again, reach out to us on Twitter at Bakako Podcast. Email bakakopodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we also have a Discord, so click through our link tree. Follow us there. We look forward to chatting with you next week because this is going to be one of the rare times we have a back-to-back. Uh, we'll post on Twitter what we're going to watch next because that'll be another debate. Uh, hopefully it'll be something short uh, so it can be watched between work, scheduling, and all that jazz. So have a good one. See you later. Bye. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.